I can't believe that I've even cracked the top 200 when I see the amount of competition that's out there. And it's really, really crowded. And it's crowded, you know, by genre too. So I do think that you, you shouldn't even necessarily go into it thinking that it's going to be a money-making play, but more for what the opportunities around it could be. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollack. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again, and enjoy the show. Okay. We are rolling. We are here today. I'm so excited to be here with Elisa Rosen, the host of Reality of Reality podcast. She is definitely one of the originals in the uh, unscripted TV podcast kind of landscape and has just always been such a fantastic advocate, supporter, critic, helper, you know, everything else. We've been talking ever since I launched mine two years ago. Elisa launched hers four years ago. And I'm just so excited to finally have her on the show. I know, I know, critic. I, I, you know me. I can't hold back. I just want you to have the best audio you can. <laughs> no, I. Love but you it. got it. You did it. You mastered it. <laughs> well, you know. And well, now we're on Zoom. That's right. Professionally amateur. That's how I like to put it. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's always constructive criticism, and I know it comes from a great place. And yeah, I'm just so happy our paths really converged over this because prior to doing this, you're just kind of Facebooky type friends, and now we have a real relationship. Yeah, I think I met you when you were at VH1, pitched you back in the day. And yeah, that was pretty much it. So I'm grateful as well. And I love your podcast. And so it's such a great hook. And I never miss an episode. Oh, so kind. Feeling is mutual. Although you have more episodes than I do. So yeah. it's a little harder to keep up. <laughs> it's okay with if you miss them. <laughs> <laughs> I listen I to almost all of your episodes. But, uh, but yeah, so as we start every episode, let's start with the light bulb. I would really love to hear, and I think the audience would love to hear, your journey of getting into the podcast space four years ago. Things have, you know, obviously you weren't the first person to host a podcast, but at the time it seemed a little bit more nascent. You know, now it's more fully mature. Yeah, what were your thoughts in doing it? As I know so many people stuck at home over these last few months are thinking about doing it themselves. Where were you four years ago? Where was your head? Not in the podcast space. I mean, it was in the sense that I was always a huge podcast fan, but I have to say that the, the, th- the reason I think it's been a success and it is something I love so much is because I didn't plan for it. I'm a planner and I'm a producer and, you know, I think about things and I sometimes, you know, it could take six months to hatch a plan and I work on it, I work on it and it either doesn't happen or maybe it doesn't happen the way I want. This happened completely accidentally and I think, you know, serendipitously. So I had just moved to LA um, and was looking for a job. I was you know, freelance, but I was looking for something more permanent. And I think I got like a UTA job listing or something that Wondry, which is now a very successful podcast network at the time, was nothing. It hadn't even launched yet that they were looking for a head of development. And again, because I had always been interested in podcasts just as a medium and was a fan myself, I thought like that could be interesting. So I just started brainstorming ideas. And I, I, you know, that's my thing. Like I loved in development. I just love ideas. So I just, I wrote down like 10 or 12 ideas. And then one of them was 
Um, I don't know if I had a name for it yet, but it was like me talking to people in the business that have really made it to see sort of like how they did it. I was always a huge fan of Mark Maron's podcast, WTF and comedians. And I love just like the journey and like how they got to where they are. So I met with Hernan Lopez, who is the CEO and he founded the company, who's a wonderful man. Um, and by the time there was like a big gap, like three or four weeks in between when we made the appointment and what I went in at that point, a lot of stuff had happened and I had started working on a very big show and I sort of decided like, I really didn't want to just be, I wasn't ready to leave TV. Like I, I, I just couldn't like picture just working in an audio medium. So by the time I went, you know, and I don't think he was necessarily interested in me in that role. So we just sort of were talking, you know, and we just kind of hit it off. And so he kind of just interrupted me sort of halfway through our conversation and said, you know, you actually have a great voice. Have you ever thought of doing a podcast? And I said, you know, it's funny. I actually had an idea for one and I told him about it. And he said, why don't you just go make an episode, kind of like a pilot, and, uh, and I'll take a listen because he was launching this network and looking for some content. So I thought, all right, who can I bother? You know how it is when doing like a sizzle or presentation and there's no money and you call in the favor for someone that you know is not going to throw it in your face, you know, if it doesn't work out or sell. So I thought, all right, who's, who, who will do it? Because they're just good like that. And I thought of Jenny Daly, who I know you know, everyone in our industry knows Jenny. And I always joke with her that I've had her on since and I joke that like, that's just typical Jenny. Like, just tell me what, had no clue. Didn't even know what a podcast was. Just tell me where to be. Like, she'll just do it because she's my friend and she's a great person. So at that time, like I found this studio that was a friend of mine, like in his house and, you know, super uncomfortable chairs, whatever. So we did it. And, um, and I thought it was good. I mean, I wasn't great. Jenny was great. You know, I think I was still, I've always loved interviewing. I think I'm pretty good at it, but I still wasn't very polished, but I, I really didn't think honestly it was going to be anything. So it was just kind of fun. So I put it together, Hernan listened to it. He's like, I really like it. I think it's great. So he actually gave me a contract for the first year. Um, so I used to, so I did my recordings at Wondery. And, you know, as you know, building this type of podcast in a very niche space is not a true crime podcast. It is not a Mark Marin. You know, I'm not a name. So they're expecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of downloads a week. It's not going to happen. So unfortunately it didn't work out that I could be like one of Wondry's podcasts, but it launched my podcast, which I'm very grateful for. And at that time I was doing a studio, which is not cheap. So I was lucky to have kind of all that, all those resources for free. And that kind of, it took off and it was biweekly for a long time. Um, and then when I switched networks to Taste of Reality last year, um, almost, almost a year ago, like eight months ago, then um, I, I decided that I was going to do it weekly because um, there were various reasons. But, you know, I'm glad that I did. I, I think it, it, it gives me more. I also sort of expanded the brand, which you know, which is like I don't just purely do interviews with people like you, producers, et cetera. You know, I also do documentary directors and authors, anything that can be considered unscripted, even if it's like a Bravo recap or, you know, talking about the Royals, things that just kind of, I, I really, for me was getting not bored, but just sort of unchallenged by what I was doing. So I had to kind of broaden it. And for some reason that led to doing more of them. So in the pandemic, I ended up doing two a week for a while, which was untenable, but I'm really, I still am enjoying it and I'll probably just do it till I don't enjoy it anymore. 
I love that though, but it's a great look into your brain. And as you mentioned, Kate's not getting the hundreds of thousands of downloads or you know Mark Marin kind of numbers, but it is a trade magazine and it's a fantastic commercial for you. And you know, people say to me all the time, oh, how much money do you make off of it? How much money do you make off of it? And it's such a hard thing to quantify because honestly, in many ways it's priceless. It's, I call it the 21st century billboard. It keeps you alive in people's brains, keeps you alive in people's ears. And I can only imagine has led to so many professional opportunities for you. Yeah, I mean that's like you said that's exactly what the money is. It's the it's the relationships, the connections and the partnerships. I mean, the thing is is as you know, you know, you were on the network side for a long time and as a producer, when I would come out to LA and I came out quite a bit to pitch, I'm not pitching producers, I'm pitching network executives. So I really didn't know anybody here other than network execs when I got to LA. And you know, there's obviously a huge producing community and yeah, I knew some producers, but you know what I mean? I didn't. And so it was really kind of selfish in a way because I really wanted to just meet people and kind of get my feet wet. And it did lead to, and, and continues to lead to great professional relationships and some lucrative partnerships have come out of it. So that's not why I did it. I think, again, if I had set out to do it because of that, it probably wouldn't have worked out. But it's been a wonderful byproduct, and I really enjoy the conversations. I, I learn a lot. I really, I, I always say I'm an introverted extrovert. You know, I'm not someone who needs to be out every day doing work drinks, and I'm not really great at small talk. So for me to be able to dive in and get sort of deep with somebody, even if it's just about their career, although I do sometimes venture into personal stuff, it's, it's gratifying and it, and, it, and it is paid off in other ways. So it's, it's been good for my brand, as they say. Sure. Um, <laughs> Even if I had a brand. I know. I guess the, re- the reality is that everyone is some version of their own brand because you're always selling something, whether you realize it or not. So you did the one with Jenny. How long until you sort of felt like, oh, wow, I, I am good at this or I do, I, I'm going to embrace sort of this coat that I, I'm not just a TV producer, I'm now a podcast producer, I'm a host, I'm a, I'm a brand. I mean, here you're kind of making a little joke about it, but certainly within the community of, of television producers, you are absolutely a brand and reality of reality is as well. So what was the pivot point for you? Was it just from doing it more and more times or you know what? Yeah, I think it was. I don't think there, I don't remember there being one, like, you know, there are ones that I'm particular, pr- particularly proud of or that I thought like, wow, I rocked that. And listen, there are ones where, you know, I can blame it on the guest in my head. Like, oh, they, they weren't what I thought they, but it's really me at the end of the day, if you're a good interviewer, you should be able to rock every interview. And and there's some that even now there's some that I feel like, and you know, usually you listen back and it's better than you thought. I don't know if you go through that as well, but um, I'm still pretty hard on myself. I still say, you know, all the time, which drives me insane still. And, but you know, at the beginning, guilty. Yeah, you know, I just did it again. But at the beginning, there were tons of uhs and oh my gods and wow, wow, wow. You know, to have my engineer take out as many as I could without it being obvious. So just those things, getting used to the sound. Listen, how about the sound of your own voice? I, I never could listen to my own voice back in TV days if I had to do scratch track or if I was interviewed for something, it was torturous. Now I listen to myself all day long. I mean, it's, it's, it's second nature. I, for good or for bad, this is how I sound and I, and I accept it. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that there was that moment, but I certainly felt comfortable. I always felt comfortable doing it because I always loved interviewing. I don't know this is way back, but I was interviewed for my own podcast I think for like my 10th podcast. And, and I told the story of growing up with my sister and we had the tape recorder because it was the 80s. And 
it was always me doing the interviews. Always. Like that was my thing. I was never the interviewee. I was always doing the interviews and they were always, by the way, terrible, but hilarious. And so it was just like something I always enjoyed. And like in high school, I was like, I'm going to be Oprah, you know, and and have a talk show. And so I always kind of had, I'm a curious person. And so I always loved just finding out about people. And, you know, I'd be the one like, I meet a stranger in the bathroom and I know their whole life story in five minutes like that. So it was kind of like a natural thing. I don't know that, I think I probably wouldn't have done it if it didn't feel natural, but I think that it's just like the 10,000 hours. The more you do something, the more you sort of like fine tune your craft, the better you get at it. And having said that, like I said, even, even with that, I still have my off days where I feel like, wow, I really could have done so much better. Sure. Well, we all feel that way about ourselves and I'm sure we're our own harshest critics. But, you know, you said you came to it kind of accidentally, but I don't know if it was wholly accidentally, right? You did raise your hand for the meeting at Wondery. You raised your hand when Hernan made that suggestion. Yeah, I'm a definite feel of fear and do it anyway person. Um, and I, to my detriment and to my, it's both a good and a bad thing. So I jump first and sometimes fall into the abyss and sometimes I land on the soft cushion and may amount, dismount perfectly. So it's, it's, I think generally in my life it served me well. Um, and I, but you know, I do think that a lot of times I wish I could be less sort of maybe impulsive, but you're right. I mean, look, things are not always completely accidental and, and I, and I could have, you always think of the sliding doors moments where, you know, I could have easily, at that point, three weeks later, I knew I didn't want to do that job. I could have just canceled it. So there had to be a reason why I went and that I spoke up when he asked about that. And, and I do, I get scared. I mean, I get scared of most things. And the big joke with my best friend from high school, who's still my closest friend is like for years, cause I bounced around in news in my early years and I would make big leaps. Like, you know, I go from market 155 to market 20. So it's like, you know, from handwritten rundowns to computers, which like at the time, I didn't know how to use a computer. And I would flip out the first week and I'd call her crying and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I suck. I suck. You know, and then she'll be like, you do this every time. So the joke was like, she would just remind me that I freak out every time and I'm fine every time. But, you know, even at my age and with my experience now, I think it's a lot less and I have conf- of a lot of confidence that I didn't have. But I think it's normal to still feel as long as you're challenging yourself. And I'm always trying to challenge myself. I think if you're not and you're stagnant, then you don't get that way because there's nothing really to fear. You're just doing what you know. But I think as long as you're challenging yourself, you're always going to feel like, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I suck. You know, I think it's normal. Definitely. If you're not learning, you're not growing. What, kind of what's the point? doesn't matter how much money you're making, which by the way, in our industry is less and less each day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, I always say it's, it's easier never to make stuff. It's harder never to get paid for it. God damn. Right? <laughs> that is so true. So true. Yeah. Well, I mean, y- your career, I mean, we should certainly talk about it because even outside of the podcast, you've had a pretty straight line of you produce things, you make things, but the things that you've made and sort of how you made them has definitely varied over the years and starting off in news and to where you are today. Do you see a clear through line in your journey? Was, was there a plan or maybe become like Oprah or whatever it is? Still or- trying, Noah. Still trying. <laughs> There's still time. I know I could do it. I could do it. You know, it's funny. Like there wasn't the clear plan was I want to move to New York and I want to work for, you know, 48 hours or, or one of those 60 minutes, you know, one of the news magazine shows. Cause I didn't back where, you know, I'm kind of old. So back in the day, there really wasn't like, Oh, I want to work on, you know, documentary series or which is what I really truly love. Or I want to even work in reality. It didn't exist. So it was, 
that was the goal. And also I was a journalist. I mean, I was the, the editor of my high school paper and I, I wrote in college and I went to graduate school at Northwestern for broadcast journalism. So the news path seemed like, and by the way, I had no support. My parents thought I was crazy and you know, they wanted me to go into human resources. So it wasn't like I, my whole family was, this is your more, you're born to do this. They all thought I was insane. And it wasn't like I lived in a small town in Alabama and didn't know, you know, I'm, I lived in New York. So this is very attainable. This wasn't something that seemed like a crazy dream, but I, after grad school, I couldn't get arrested. And so really just the goal, my first job was in Bangor, Maine, which I mentioned market 150 or 155. So I just was so laser focused on moving to New York and working for one of the big networks. And I, which is funny because I ultimately did. And then it went away after it literally, the show got canceled after six months. It was the Brian Gumbel news magazine show. So I sort of fell into the entertainment side in the late 90s at VH1. And, but to, to, your, to your question, the common through line really was always and kind of still is the same, which is doing longer form documentary series. So even when I was in Bangor and Baltimore, which were my first two markets, I was doing some on-air reporting and some, but, but I would have to go to the news because I was a producer. But I, but, and I, again, I didn't really even want to be on air. I just wanted to do this long form because that's what I was also trained to do in graduate school. So I did like, you know, a series called Wounds of War about veterans that were coming back from war um, and how they were, their experiences. I did one on Jews for Jesus when I was in Baltimore. And these were multi-part, you know, at the time, these were long six to seven minute pieces over three nights. And I kind of always hated doing the on-air part of it. You know, I was like very self-conscious. I never could have been a full-time reporter, but I just wanted to tell the story. So I think that was the through line. Like I was so lucky once I finally got to the fun side, which I call, you know, when I got to VH1, that's when I started doing these long form documentaries. And it was so much fun and it was amazing. And I love that kind of storytelling. And so no matter what I'd done, even though I've done formats and I certainly know how to format the hell out of a show, what I really, really enjoy, and I enjoy watching format stuff as well, but what I really enjoy the most making and watching is longer form doc. And then the true crime stuff didn't really come until later, even though that was probably always an interest. It didn't really start to blossom until I did a show about eight years ago called Killer Profile about serial killers. And then I sort of like got into that FBI criminal profiling world and, and then sort of never came back from it. Well, it sounds like, <laughs> really the market just had to catch up with your interests. There you go. I was ahead of the curve. Big time. <laughs> but in many ways, right? Because obviously pandemic aside, where now I joke we're all Uber drivers, right? <laughs> right? And you have to live in this, this uncertainty that's <laughs> because that's just the reality of it. There's no certainty in, in this industry and there probably never was, but it certainly doesn't exist now. But you seem to have embraced that from the jump. Yeah, I think... I always had the confidence that I could be employable even when I wasn't or I was, you know, had short, luckily short, but pieces of time where I wasn't. I always, I'm a hustler. So I feel like, not that it always works, but if you sort of have the skills and you have the hustle and you can combine the two, you'll probably land somewhere. But, but yeah, to your point, look, I, what I'm doing now, we could talk about that. You know, I had to make that happen. There, there was no one, you do get to a point where you do become more expensive and you do become at a certain level, you know, that you don't want to go backwards. And, and it's a young industry. And, it, it, and, and again, when you're talking about, okay, I could have a young hustler who's really smart and really good and pay them a quarter of what I have to pay this person. Why would I do, why wouldn't I do that? So 
you got to be smart and you have to figure out how to make the opportunities happen for yourself. And it's not easy. It's, it's really not. And like you said, especially now in this pandemic, it's even more challenging because just the lack of re- the lack of work. I mean, there's a lot of work and there's no work. It's sort of like this weird time. But anyway, so yeah, I will not say like, oh, I, I've been so blessed and so lucky to have these opportunities come my way. No, I haven't. I've made, I've identified them and I've made them happen. I've worked my butt off to get them. Now, look, do I have privilege that's come along with a lot of it? Absolutely, of course. I'm not saying I haven't, but I certainly have, you know, I have no connections. You know, my, the, I always say like our best connection was Wolf Blitzer. And when I called him at 21 and he was just like, he couldn't even get me a job serving coffee, which I absolutely would have done. So, <laughs> you know, we, we don't have like, oh, my dad was a writer in the business and my mom was, you know, marketing. Like I, my parents didn't know anything. So, so I really definitely have, you know, I'm proud of kind of what I've accomplished and where I've had to pivot. I mean, I ended up, in Philadelphia for 13 years, not a TV, not a, not known as an LA or New York for our business and figured out a way to create a career there. And I'm, I'm super proud of that. But again, had to create that. It did not exist. I love that. I think it's such sound advice. And we're not even at the part of advice to your younger self yet. Okay. I haven't thought about it because I should have thought about it because I know that's your stock question, but I know exactly what it is. We'll get there. Outwardly, I would imagine a lot of people think, oh, the podcast is your full-time thing. And we all know that it, again, it's the commercial, it's the billboard. What, how would you define yourself? If you had a business card, if people still had those these days, what would, it, what would it say on it? And when you're not recording the podcast, how are you paying for that beautiful wallpaper behind you? <laughs> I always say this is an accent wall. I can show you my, my other walls afterwards, but thank you. Um, well, listen, I'm also fortunate my husband has, uh, is a lawyer and, and does well for himself. Uh, he owns his, part of his own firm. So, so you know, I don't know that uh, we're, we're definitely not living the way that we're living just on, on my salary. So I just want to get that very clear. This wall, although I probably paid for this wallpaper. <laughs> um, and I also want to say, before I answer the question, you're right about the podcast. I mean, I, somebody asked me, because you know, I'm sure same with you, people call you for advice on starting their own. And they asked me about the time commitment. So I actually tallied up because I always think this is literally the smallest part of what I do. And it came out to like three and a half hours a week, which really is nothing. I mean, when you think of your days, because it never has felt, I mean, sometimes if I'm crunching on other stuff and I have to get a podcast up, it can feel like that, but it really is just fun and, and feels like such a small part of what I do that it's not even not even usually on my radar when I tell people what I do, to be honest, and, sure. and if, unless they the bring most, it up. It's just the most public part of what you do. Yeah, it's so funny. So, um, you know, I, I call myself a producer, which is funny because I actually directed and produced a documentary last year. And so I was a filmmaker for a good year doing the, doing the circuit, you know, and it felt, <laughs> I mean, talk about feeling like a, a sham, you know, like all these people are here. They've like devoted their lives to documentaries and they're in the indie film world. And they're like, so a filmmaker, but you know, and I'm like, eh, just like a reality producer, you know? <laughs> so, so that was weird. I'm definitely not comfortable with that mantle, but I still, and, and the other thing is, I, I worked in development for 12 years. I mean, I produced at the most a pilot. I, I hadn't produced something fully other than sizzles and presentations for 12 years. So 
but I come back to producer ultimately. Um, but I used to call myself a development person, development executive, or you know, however you want to phrase it. But but I, I I still just come back to producer because at the end of the day, or that's what I, or an executive producer to your podcast, you know, because actually what I do now, I'm executive producing, but uh, but I'm still producing. At the end of the day. I'm still a producer. When you're coming up with ideas, you're executing, you're selling them, you're making them happen, you're a producer. So I think that's probably what I'll always call myself. Well, and, and our mutual friend, Brand, he said yes. some similar things as well, where you know, he made a documentary, or he's made a couple, and yeah. he said what, what separates him from 99% of the people out there is that he did it. Not to say he's the best, he's certainly not the worst, but he did it. And you can go watch or purchase or experience the thing that he made. I like to break it down. There's promisers and there's doers, right? And so, oh, I'm, I'm working on this. I'm working on that. I mean, you're proof positive that you're, you're a doer. You're making it. Maybe that's what you should be. You should say doer. I'm a doer. Well, it's funny that you say that because I completely agree. And that is a perfect example. Now that I'm thinking about it, making that doc is a perfect example of jumping into the abyss because I committed to it and had literally no idea how I was going to pull it off. I had no money and, you know, I had a full-time job at the time and I, I did, I did it. I still don't even know how I did it. So it is kind of crazy. And I think, like you said, what Brant said is true. You, I could have, trust me, I could easily weasel my way out of that one after it was like a drunken night of let's do it, you know, and then the next morning could have easily sobered up and gone. And of course I've done that with other things. I mean, I don't do every single thing I have an idea to do. That'd be crazy. But yeah, I, you just do it. Yeah. Well, you are a filmmaker because you did it. But, uh, <laughs> but you also do bring up the wisdom of what not to spend your time on, especially in this, in this world and in this industry where you have a thousand options and this, that, the other, saying, okay, this is going to get my energy, this is going to get my energy, and this just isn't, right? And trying to, trying to juggle that, especially as, as our lives and our careers become less linear. Yeah, I think, and look, a lot of us have families and kids and animals and life and other charities or things that we devote our time to. And there's not a lot of time in the day when you're doing all of that. So you have to be smart about how you dedicate your time. And I say yes a lot, but I also say no a lot. Well, pivoting back specifically to reality of reality in the podcast, which I think you just, you just shared it, right? Three and a half hours a week. Anyone can come up with three and a half, not anyone, most anyone can come up with three and a half hours a week if they truly want to do it. And I guess the question would be is, would you jump in today, right? Or was it the right moment in time, 2016? Is it too saturated now? You know, for so many people, as, as you mentioned, call me, I'm sure even more people call you. Should I do this? What does it take? This, that, the other. I mean, especially with the whole podcast to broadcast and seeing you know, all these projects selling, and becoming television shows or with more companies like Wondery and everyone else getting into the fray and spending money against these, Audible, whatnot. Do you think it's still a wise use of people's time or do you think that there's a new medium right around the corner that people should be looking at doing? If you're looking at a podcast like mine, I would say, you know, do it if you love it. Don't do it because you think you're going to make money. Do it because you just feel like you need to do it for yourself and for your creative outlet, or maybe it is to make connections and relationships. But again, I don't think that should be the only motivation because you're probably not going to make money. It is a very saturated market. And frankly, unless you're celeb or you have some incredible hook that people haven't heard, you probably won't. I mean, that's just, that is the reality of the reality. So I hate, hate to burst anyone's bubble on that front. And having said that, I don't know if I will get it into it today. It's a really hard question. So part two though, is that you mentioned the audibles and the wonderies of the world. You know, look, this is, 
there is, there are big opportunities. And part of what I'm doing now, a big part of what I'm doing now is, is producing true crime podcasts for a huge platform. And um, these are like network documentary series, premium documentary series. And so it's very, you know, people are like, oh, are you going to host it? I'm like, no, you're not getting what this is. This is not reality. You know, this is not me interviewing true crime reporters. Like this is, this is serial or Dirty John. You know, these are, these are their whole, whole different thing. And yes, these, they're all ideas that I brought and they're all things that are designed also to be spun off into uh, TV, film, limited series, et cetera. So very much deliberate. So on that front, yes, I do think that it's worth your time. If you have something, and you know, you've, you've been in this space as well, um, consulting that if you have a, it's way harder to sell, let's just say true crime, because that's the space that I'm in right now with these series. It's very, I think there's, like I'm thinking of one of my shows in particular that even with a good sizzle would probably be hard to sell as an unscripted series right now. But once this show is done, I, I'm putting this out into the universe now. I really think the chances of it selling as a scripted limited series are extremely high. However, could I, brought, could I bring it out as a scripted series without the IP and creating? Because you have to really hear the story to believe it. It's one of those, like people kind of know it, but they really don't know it. So anyway, I'm, I don't want to be cagey, but all I'm saying is, yes, I, I think there are opportunities. Not everything's a podcast and not just because you didn't sell it to TV. Can it be a podcast necessarily? I mean, I think that you still have to have a really amazing story, but I do think that, you know, look, there's a reason why some of these bigger production companies are starting their own, like Asylum's got Oddity. I think Brent's company, Wheelhouse, has, um, I forget the name of it, but they started an audio network. So I think the challenge is, yeah, making the money in it. And, and I do think that there's the Joe Rogans and the Mark Marins of the world that make you think like, oh my God, you can make $10 million, $20 million a year with a podcast. That's a very, very small segment of the podcast population. I mean, there's gazillions of podcasts. In fact, when I've charted and I have charted quite a bit, like when I've been in, the, I can't believe that I've even cracked the top 200 when I see the amount of competition that's out there. And and I'm not even taking credit for it because I think it's bizarre and like doesn't even make sense how the charts are done, but it's really, really crowded and it's crowded, you know, by genre too. So I do think that you, you shouldn't even necessarily go into it thinking that it's going to be a money-making play, but more for what the opportunities around it could be. So I think that's my best advice right now, but talk to me in a year and I might feel differently. No, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. And, and I co-sign on everything you just said, right? Again, sorry to bring up the metaphor again, but it is, these shows are commercials kind of for us professionally, or they could be a commercial for the show that you ultimately hope to sell to the television network, right? I mean, just everything's harder to get on the air now. And maybe, yeah, maybe the podcast becomes almost in some ways like the new version of paid development, you know, but someone else is paying for that development. Um, you know, it's That's just another, another place that you can work and, make interesting things and, you know, specific to the kinds of shows you and I make, not the true crime stuff you're doing. You also don't have to deal with any notes, right? You just get to make what's interesting to you. For our own podcast? You yeah, mean? for our own podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, I'm getting notes on the other stuff. But <laughs> yes, yes. No, that's great. I mean, it's totally, it's a lot of fun to be able to do that. 
Well, and as I mentioned earlier, right, it's been an interesting look into your brain of what you find interesting, starting with Jenny Daly, who, as we all know, is very interesting, but to the, all the variety and range of guests that you brought on to, you know, most, most recently, I mean, you're such an advocate for bringing on people that maybe are typically found, you know, in the executive suite or on the production suite. And you now have this platform and, and you haven't been afraid to use it. And that's something I really commend you for. Yeah, thanks. I, 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 I did a lot of self-reflection when the Black Lives Matter movement kind of emerged again after the, Joy, the George Floyd killing. And I went back. At that point, I'd done over 100 podcasts. And I went back and I counted how many Black producers or anyone, like I had a Black attorney on who's an entertainment attorney. And I had 11 um, total. And, and, you know, it was always something that I tried to be conscious of and, and, and always thinking about gender and race, et cetera. But, you know, in my mind, it was like a, a, a lot of the, probably 75% of the people, at least I used to interview people that I know, or I have, you know, either somebody recommends or I know personally. And I just thought like, well, that's, that's all there is. Like, that's all I know. So that must be all there is. And it was so amazing to me what emerged during the pandemic and the movement in terms of how many black producers are in our industry, male and female, I was blown away and I felt like a complete idiot, to be honest, because I realized how, what a bubble I had been living in. So I started to try to make a conscious effort to interview more black producers in our industry. And I had on some panels. Um, I had a mix of male and female, and then I had on just an all-female panel. But if you noticed, I've tried to, I don't know that I'm at 50%, but I'm close. It's literally the least I could do. Like, that's how I felt. Like, I literally can't, I went out and I marched, you know, with masks on, but you sort of feel like helpless in a way. Like, what can I do to actually make a change? And I figured, and then I was nervous because I thought like, I don't want to be seen as like, oh, tell me what to do. And, you know, I want to be your ally. And I didn't know the right way to do it or how to do it. Or if they would be offended that like a white woman is giving them a platform. And the reception has been just the opposite. And so I just look at it as like, I'm a vessel to be this platform, but I don't pretend to know anything or or have any better insight than anyone else. I'm just trying to open the conversation up and, and really shine a light. And that's literally, again, I feel the least I can do. Well, I love it. I guess this is a good dovetail into, you've given so many great kernels of advice, but now let's ask that question we, we mentioned earlier, which is the advice to your younger self. I mean, yeah, as I, as I said earlier, you've, you've kind of answered it probably 20 different ways, but if you want to crystallize it down into, into one nice soundbite here, now's your moment. I don't think that I've said what I'm going to say, actually. So, Ooh, I love it. You. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's My a late advice... plot twist. <laughs> right. If you've stayed tuned to the end, just <laughs> wait for it. Just wait for it. My advice to me, my younger self is to slow down. I was always in a rush. I just, you know, like I said, my goal was laser focused, just go to New York. And I just plowed through. I spent a year to the, to, I spent a year to the day in Bangor, Maine. I had a contract for a year. I moved to Baltimore the day my contract was up. I lived in Baltimore for two and a half years before I made it to New York, two different stations. So there's a few things I would have done differently. I would have taken a year off after graduate school or maybe in between college and graduate school and done what I did when I would turn 28, which is I went to Southeast Asia for five months after the Brian Gumbel show was canceled. 
I was single. I was living in New York at the time when everybody was subletting their apartment through Craigslist. I cashed in my 401k, which kids I do not recommend. But at the time, it wasn't much. It was like 10 grand, but I had no money. So that was my money to travel. I traveled on $5 a day. My parents were worried sick, even though I was 28. It was kind of like a ballsy thing to do. But that probably should have happened around 21, 22. Um, I don't regret it. It was probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It was an incredible experience. But you know, I was always in such a rush and I was always so driven that I never really did slow down, even to hone my craft. When I left Bangor, I was really just getting started with some of that stuff I told you about with the long form and really getting my writing skills. And I was even doing some anchoring, which again, even though I didn't want to go that path, I think all of those skills will really have helped me in my career, at least in news. So I just never slowed down to just enjoy where I was. I was just too anxious to get to the next place. And even when I was traveling in Asia, you know, everyone would be sleeping on the bus, you know, the seven hour bus ride. And I would be like reading my guidebook to see where I was going to go next. And I think like I've really changed in the last, probably in the last 10 years in that way where I'm really much more in the moment. I'm a lot more grateful for what I have in the moment and for just appreciating what I'm doing. And, you know, I think part of that is just like settling down and having a kid and that's just part of life. But it doesn't mean you can't be ambitious and you can't have goals and you can't hustle and all of that stuff. But it also means that you have to appreciate where you are and you have to be able to kind of smell the roses a bit and really just take your time and like have trust in yourself and the universe that like you will find your way and it doesn't have to have to happen like this second. And I do find that with a lot of, especially in our industry, with a lot of younger people in their twenties, because of the way our industry's changed, that there is that expectation like, Hey, I just like worked on this show as a PA. Like, am I ready to be an EP now? And you're like, are you fucking, sorry. I don't know if you curse, but like, you can curse are, you, are you, are you kidding me? Like you've worked in this industry for 10 minutes, but I think that's, generational. I don't know. There's probably a lot of reasons for it, but there is something to slowing down and just really working on yourself, your skills, and knowing that like, I know it's harder now because it's like, well, we could all die tomorrow, you know? So it's a little <laughs> like, you kind of like does your head in a bit, you know, because life is either really short or really long, but I like to think it's long. And I like to think that like, I, I'm much more comfortable sitting where I am, even though of course I don't have everything I want, but I have everything I need and I'm very content to be where I am and proud of what I've done. And I, I wish that I could have told my 25 year old self, it, it's okay. Like you're going to get there. Just like calm down. Well, and I can imagine that there were things you got to do in, in Maine that you weren't allowed to do in Baltimore or certainly. In oh New my York. God. You have no, you have no idea. I could do literally anything. I mean, I could, I could have single-handedly done the news, the weather, the sports, and no one would have noticed. Like, I mean, that was the thing. I didn't see the blessing there. I didn't see, it felt more like annoying. Like, oh, I have to run prompter and I'm producing. Like, that's like, you know, grunt work. But I didn't see all the amazing things I was learning 360. And that's the other thing. It's like, try to like really see, you know, I think like PAs are like, oh, I'm so sick of bringing coffee. And it's like, yeah, but how about when you bring the coffee, like try to get the producer's ear for 10 minutes and ask them about something they're doing. So it's actually worth your time. Totally. Because by the way, when you're one step up from PA, you may not have access to the producer, right? I mean, yeah. I certainly yeah. learned that when you know, I, was, I was an assistant, as many people were. And I remember getting that first promotion to manager 
which was great. And I was so excited. And I got to answer the phone and say my own name, not theirs, and just mm -hmm. felt incredible. But I also didn't get to talk to them every day, right? And when you're that, you know, that sort of that fulcrum of information, that's your chance to learn and to grow. Um, not that you can't learn and grow in the other spots, but you, you know, you got to be more clever and creative about it. Yeah. And I'll say on the other side too, I mean, I've always tried to mentor and give people time because I know how hard it was for me. I mean, I made the joke about Wolf Blitzer, but I really just didn't know anyone. And it was, you know, most people that I was connected, you know, people connected me to just shut the door, did not give a shit, did not spend five seconds talking to me. And the people who did, and there were few and far between, were became just sort of like lifelong heroes of mine. Be and then I realized, like, it doesn't take that much. And I know that we're busy, and I know that it, it's sometimes annoying, maybe, if someone's asking you a lot of questions, or you feel like they're kissing your butt, or you feel like they're... But just try to, like, slow down and remember where you were 20 years ago, or whatever it was, and give them the benefit of your time and your knowledge. And like, sometimes it is annoying. I have a really busy day and I promise a stranger that Instagram messaged me if they could pick my brain for 20 minutes. And I really do try to say yes to all of those requests um, because I do feel like it's important. So I just am like kind of putting that out because I think especially here, people can be self-absorbed and sometimes selfish. And look, we all get like that. I get it. But I think it's really important. Well, I think I've found you to be incredibly gracious with your time. I definitely aim to, to you know, to be giving and kind with my time as well. But yeah, you got to do what you think is right. And, you know, unfortunately, not everyone subscribes to that theory, but, but there are plenty of people who do. And, you know, finding those mentors, finding those early bosses, finding those people that really um, believe in you and will you know, embrace what you can become and not feel threatened or, you know, get comfortable with how you're benefiting their life in the moment, um, give you opportunities. Those are the people you want to spend your time with. I completely agree. You know, but you're right. Like spend a little more time in Maine, <laughs> you know, or yeah. I, I guess it was so cold though. Noah, <laughs> like those winters were brutal. My <laughs> Lord. Gorgeous That's... summers though. Gorgeous summers. What yeah. an amazing place to live in the summer. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah, learn, grow. And, you know, as, as I spend more and more of my time with startups and sort of fledgling companies, um, you know, some, some big blue chip companies as well, you know, I'm just constantly reminded, like, these are your tracks. Go work at the big company that everyone's going to know and probably not get to do as much and spend years and years and years trying to find your way or go work at the company that nobody knows, get to do everything yeah, maybe maybe your paycheck won't won't uh, clear, you know, in two weeks. But at least you're learning. I wish there were somewhere I, in the middle. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I've definitely taken the latter path my whole career, and and I don't think I could have done it any other way. You know, I kind of always have liked being a big fish in a smaller pond, not like for attention that kind of thing, but but just what you said, being able to do so much more. Um, I was only really in one like super corporate environment. Even VH1 was not like that. Oxygen wasn't like that. But uh, my dirty little secret, and to talk about plot twist, is that I worked for Fox News. Now, I literally helped launch that interesting organization. Um, so that was the only time like we, were, we weren't allowed to wear jeans. We had to wear like pantsuits and skirts. And it was just like, I didn't even know what was happening. I mean, I never, before and since, I have never worked in a corporate environment like that, which kind of, I mean, there were obviously a lot of other things going on there. But that was just like one example where I'm just like, this is so bizarre. Like, this is so not my thing. 
clearly the uh, universe was sending you a signal that that was not your thing. But by the way, some of my really close friends still from those days, it was sort of like, you know, I don't want to make any war analogies, but it's sort of like being in the bunker with, you know, your team against the enemy and you're just like laughing half the time and then just crying half the time. It was definitely an interesting experience, but it got me to New York, my goal. So talk about sacrifice. (laughs) There you go. And now you're in LA and you're, you know, a great, a great, uh, you know, I think inspiration and, and mentor to many and, you know, just, just keep doing what you're doing because it's really impressive. Oh, thank you. No, so great to talk to you. I really appreciate what you're doing too. And that our new sort of podcast connection has been really fun for me. There you go. We're in the club together. So appreciate it. Enjoy your day. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. All right. Be well. So there you have it. The true story of reality of reality. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to my guest, Aliza Rosen, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.